I feel this a terribly difficult passage. St. Paul tells the people of God in Rome, the church in Rome, the church that's been fraught with a lot of difficulty of division and persecution and things along the way. He tells them that thing that I heard since I was a boy, be patient. Patience is not something I'm naturally good at. How about you? I was born with the dreamer's disease, I like to tell people. I see the world for what it could be, and I could see how it could be possibly that world, and it shouldn't take much to get us there. Yet, that's not reality. To get us to the world that could be means going through all kinds of obstacles and difficulties, and so I find myself frustrated, and I'm called again to learn that lesson once more of patience. St. Paul tells the church to be patient, not to, to go back into the ways of the flesh, but to continue the life of the Spirit. Be patient. You've been saved by Jesus. Don't go backwards. Be patient. Better things are coming for you amidst the pain and the trial. Be patient. Stay the course. Or as one person told me after the nine o'clock service, have perseverance, continue onward. These are all inspirational messages if put in a rocky film, but when it is your life, patience is hard. If you've read through the order of worship, which I'm assuming many of you have, you will see that there's a letter from me to the congregation. Many of you know that I had a really terrible bout of illness that took place last Labor Day and I was on medical leave till February 1st. I did almost die twice. I'm still on this health journey and it's not been easy. It's been a journey that's been marked by that word. Be patient. Don't go too fast. Don't do too much. Be patient. And it's a health journey that has affected my body and there's been learning through my body, but it is as much about my mind, my heart, and my spirit that I've learned these days. As I've walked with God in this, I have received something new that I've never had before, having gone through this and still living in the difficulty of this pilgrimage. So along the way, whenever I get frustrated, because I like you, well, I don't know about you, but I know that for me, I can get frustrated, especially when things don't go according to my timeline. I turn to some wisdom. I know that patience is the answer, but how do I make patience a friend that it lives inside of me deeply? So I turn to friends, I turn to the books on the shelves, I listen to the traditions and the histories so I bring to you today one of the stories I like to read, and it's from not an ancient source. It's from a Hollywood actor. Can wisdom come from Hollywood? Maybe. Ethan Hawke, the actor and screenwriter and director, has written this beautiful little book. I've read this book to you. I've read this story to you before. It's called Rules for a Night. In it, he imagines that his family has come across this, this old historical family treasure trove of literature where a knight of old in England was writing lessons down to a child who was going to enter into the knighthood. 
It's basically of the genre, rules for living or instructions for living. And, and those kinds of books and lessons are nice because they summarize deep, profound wisdom into things that we can digest. And surprise, surprise, here's a chapter called Patience. He writes this, there is no such thing as a once in a lifetime opportunity. A hurried mind is an addled mind. It cannot see clearly or hear precisely. It sees what it wants to see or hears what it's afraid to hear. And it misses much. A knight makes time his ally. There is a moment for action, and without a clear mind, that moment is obvious. And he tells a story. Sir Richard had a celebrated white stallion that ran away. Friends and neighbors expressed their condolences. How unfortunate. You must be so sad. He said simply, we shall see. A week later, the stallion returned, bringing with it two equally running, stunning mares. Sir Richard's friends and neighbors said, oh my, you are so lucky. Again, Sir Richard answered simply, we shall see. A month went by and Richard's eldest son, Jonathan, was thrown from one of the new horses and broke his leg. Jonathan cried out in part from the pain, but more because now he would not be able to ride with his fellow soldiers in the cavalry. How terrible for your boy, lamented everyone, consoling King Richard or Sir Richard. What horrendous luck. I feel so sorry for your poor son. He must be terribly disappointed. Once again, Sir Richard answered, we shall see. In the following month, the young men of Jonathan's cavalry unit were ambushed and killed in northern France. Neighbors came to me, my friend, saying, your son is the only one of our boys to survive. Aren't you the lucky one? We shall see, he answered. Remember, it is possible that it is not the sun that goes down. Perhaps it is the earth that turns. No one is really sure, but one fact is clear. Things are not always as they seem. In my estimation, it is the long view that is the more interesting view. Patience requires the long view, and in my estimation, I'll say it again, the long view of things is the more interesting view. I grew up about 20 minutes from several different Amish communities in central Illinois. And a lot of people would go out to these Amish communities to uh, go see their agriculture, go to their pumpkin patches, or even buy cabinetry because of the fine craftsmanship in their shops. There's one story I heard once of an Amish father who worked in one of these uh, carpentry shops that sold his wares to the English. You see, in the Amish world, Anyone who's not Amish is the English. And the boy, looking around the shop of his father, noticing the tools that the father would use, asked a very specific question. Why do we use some tools and not other tools? You see, you might have seen or heard along the way that the Amish shun technology, that they were pure Luddites. It's not quite as simple as that. 
You see, you can't be a human being and shun technology. Anything that you make is a technology. Fire is a technology. A hammer is a technology. A stick to dig a hole is technology. You cannot shun technology. It is cultural as it is natural. But there are certain levels of technology that the Amish have not used or utilized. That's true. They, they yearn for a more simple life, a more rigorous life, a life where your hands are used. So it's not common to walk into an Amish person's shop and see Black and Decker saws and drills. The boy asks his father, why do we use some of these tools and not tools like the English? And, and more, he said, what about the ordnung down the road. You see, the ordnung, this is a word for kind of the political or governing ecclesiastical body of local Amish communities. So what about the Amish brothers and sisters down the road in that other town? How come they use some different tools still than us? Because it's not uniform from ordnung to ordnung. And the father said, you see, son, before we accept the use of a new technology or a new tool, our ordnung gets together and we begin to deliberate and ask ourselves the question, what will this new technology do to the community we're in and what will it do to the land? The answer to those questions will dictate whether the community will accept the new technology or not. Will it break apart our community? Will it harm the land? To this day in central Illinois, Amish communities still buy dilapidated old farms that had been given for about 50 years or so over to industrialized farming. And in their estimation, it takes about 10 years to make the land healthy again. 10 years after what's been stripped away from all the industrial use and abuse. And so they ask the question, what will this tool do to us? And what will it do to the land? It's not simply the technology bad. No. It's a view that's a long one. It's a patient view that says, what will it do way into the future and how will it affect the soul of our community? Patience. Patience implies the long view. And if you permit me to be so bold, I want to make a sweeping declaration to you. Our society is an impatient one. Ours is an impatient society. The great book called Small is Beautiful, written by E.F. Schumacher, talks about our desire in our world for everything bigger, bolder, faster, newer, more and more and more. And Schumacher talks about this impulse called the forward stampede of modernity. What is that? Well, let's come up with a new technology that will do stuff in this world and let's do it faster, bigger, more, make it better for us in terms of the bottom line thinking, make things easier so we don't have to indignify or undignify ourselves with sweat or labor. And then along the way, we might find out that what we've created has actually done harm to us and harm to the world around us. But the forward stampede of modernity says that's just part and parcel of the whole adventure. What we're going to do later on, what we hope for later on is more smart minds, more acts of ingenious to come up with corrective tools to sort out the mess that we're making today.
the forward stampede of modernity says, make something, no matter the cost, decide later you're going to come up with a solution. I can hear my wife, she's in Illinois right now, but I can hear her remind me of a thing she says often. She says, honey, don't forget that maturity is the ability to prolong gratification. And if that's one way to understand maturity, then doesn't this imply that our society is rather immature? We can't prolong the gratification, we have to have it now, more now without thinking of the result. There's a scary reality coming to the shores of our life, or in fact, it's been here for some time. It's called artificial intelligence. It's not coming. It didn't just arrive. It's been here. You're just now seeing it do stuff that mystifies us. Artificial intelligence. We can do something. We've created something. But we're not 100% certain. We're not even halfway certain that we know where this thing's going. The technologists who created this don't know. They have really only guesses. This could be bad. And if it startles you, you need to have a holy fright about it. You do. You need to have your eyes and ears open when I tell you that this is a problem. It's not simply a solution. Oh, there are solutions with AI, but there are problems. And here's the thing about our society. We think, oh, one day someone's going to come up with something later to fix it. Really? Or let's legislate laws to fix the problems that can happen with AI. Now, I want to ask you something about how our legislators work. Do they work faster in D.C. than they do in Silicon Valley? No, not at all. Have you ever seen senators ask Mark Zuckerberg how to change their profile on TV? It's comical, friends. And what's more than that, how about bad actors? Do they wait for legislation? No. But here's the thing of it. We've had science fiction for about 150 years tell us, be careful, and we still just go and do. Why am I describing this? I think what I'm describing is the, the thing that Paul is talking about. I'm just showing you how it is pervasive in the world. Paul is saying, don't go the way of the flesh. You've been saved by Jesus. Go the way of the Spirit. But what's the way of the flesh? It is the way of passions, unmitigated desire. It is the way of the short-term thought. It is impatiently thinking of what I can get tomorrow as soon as possible so I can have that gratification met now and I can amass my wealth now so that I can get my kids the amount of wealth they need, I think they need to have now. And, and who declares what amount of wealth is necessary? Is it is it knowing we have enough because we look at a splendid table on Thanksgiving? Or is it knowing we have enough because marketers tell you what's enough? In the images of the false good life on television, in film, and in books. Or is it knowing enough because your neighbor got a new Tesla and you're down, darn right just jealous about that? We have enough hard time feeling fulfilled by anything. What, what tells us that we're going to be fulfilled if we just get the next thing? Why do we buy that lie? That's the way of the flesh, and it leads to destruction. And you've been there. If you're a Christ follower, you've been there. You've done that. You've looked to fill what's missing in your heart with all that, and it didn't work, and it won't work. It won't work. You will die lonely. It won't work. And so Paul says, go after the way of the Spirit, the way that is the long view. 
So go after the way of life that requires of you a trust in what's to come, that God will still make all things new. You see, when we go back the other way, even Christians, it's really born out of fear. Fear that we're not keeping up. Fear that we're not enough. Fear that we're not happy. And our whole society is built on this fear mindset, the fear of scarcity, that there's not enough. And it creeps into the church in sadistic ways. I mean, it is nefarious. It is that fear and fleshliness that has infected the church and caused churches everywhere to be afraid of change. Fear of change is fleshliness. Because when we change, it might make us uncomfortable. But here's the truth, and I'm going to tell you. To bring the gospel to new generations, to bring it to new places, to see how its light shines in different corners where we never imagined it before, it's going to bring change. It's going to bring some discomfort. It's going to say, wow, there's a longer and bigger and broader view than you ever imagined when you first encountered Jesus. It has only grown because your view is finite and small, but you start getting a glimpse of something larger when you hang on to the pathways of God. I know, I know comfort in church and stability, they seem sober, but they too can be fleshly desires. It's the reason why we want to take hold of things to try to control them. It's the reason why we can convince ourselves to vote for people who have not a shred of virtue in their bones. And we can act like they're God's chosen because they might give us the right Supreme Court justice or they pose with the right people in pictures. I don't care if you're on the right or the left. They all do that. They're just playing you. Playing you. And Jesus is over here saying, I'm being honest with you. Come to me. His is a longer view, though. It's a more mature, it's a harder view to take the longer view, but it's the more interesting view. Meanwhile, St. Paul says, listen, this whole long view thing, creation knows it. It's deep down into the fibers and knowledge of the most intimate of things. And it yearns for more of that spirit. It yearns and it groans in anticipation and hope. For all to come to pass the way God has said it will come to pass, where things will be made new again. We often imagine that we're preaching the gospel to the cosmos like St. Francis preaching to the birds. And if I could get you to just think about it that way, I will have been able to die a happy man. But have you ever realized that the creation is preaching to you? Maybe the birds are telling you. They're telling you how to be faithful. Maybe the flower is telling you to get it right. Maybe the fields cry out injustice, injustice, injustice. This morning, in between services, I was reading some poetry by Mary Oliver. And I opened it up and I just loved what she said here in this poem. Listen to this. I go down to the shore. I go down to the shore in the morning and depending on the hour the waves are rolling in or moving out. And I say, oh, 
I am miserable. What shall, what should I do? And the sea says in its lovely voice, excuse me, I have work to do. Sometimes we convince ourselves to live in that short, impatient mindset and we feel miserable when all the world around us is shining. And we struggle with the long view because we know the long view is going to require patience and there's going to be hardship. And the sea is saying, I'm at work. I'm going that direction. I got work to do. The long view is hard, it's true. The long view is hard because biologically we're not made for it. Your, your biology, your brain is still built on trying to survive today. Get enough. This is why people, this is actually why we have addictions to alcohol and sugar is because you need sugars to live and it gives you energy. And the problem is we just can go to the store and get so much of it. But when you're out in hunter-gatherer societies, you have to really get as much of it as you can. This, this is the reason. That's the reason, guys. So if you struggle with sugar and alcohol intake, you might be amongst the fittest along evolutionarily, evolutionary lines. But all that has to be held into balance now that we live different kinds of lives. And so looking at the long view is hard. We're not really accustomed to it. But when you can look at the long view, it will help straighten out your now. It'll make you realize you gotta keep going even when there are bumps. It'll make you realize you've got to be patient, even when it's hard. I remember listening to a radio show in Chicago, Illinois, and they were talking about giving up smoking. It's really hard to do, not just because of the nicotine, but because we have a hard time imagining the long view long enough. We go to what the end could be, and then we come right back to the now, and we want the feeling of now to feel good. But I heard one guy tell another guy, I keep quitting, and I keep failing at quitting, and I heard the other guy say the gospel to him. He said this, he goes, well, keep quitting until it takes. Keep quitting until it takes. You take the long view, friends. You can keep quitting until it takes. Keep going and keep stepping and keep moving because there's something there waiting for you. The creation knows it. St. Paul knows it. And in the heart of any Christian knows it. And here's what's waiting for you. A life with God where all that is broken is fixed and healed. That kind of patience requires one of the virtues. It requires hope. Amongst the theological virtues are faith, love, and hope. And hope is built right down in the depth of a Christian walkway, a Christian path, a Christian spirituality. Now, I really never wanted to be one of those ministers who had a major life event and then I'll, I'll ever talk about that life event. But some people in the congregation have said, it'd be nice to hear, Pastor, if you talk more about how you felt God working at you through this health event that I referenced earlier. So I'll share this. Every now and again, I, I would be journeying through this health thing and I'd feel a moment of strength. I feel bulletproof, actually. I got a spirit of a bear right here. You just, you just may not know that about me. I, I, just, I got stuff I got to do. And I, I want to go after it. I want to take life down to the marrow, and I want to get all of it. 
And so I go into the doctor's office and I'm like, I'm ready. Let me start kickboxing. I want to go to do jujitsu. I want to go do all these things. I got stuff I want to do. And she, she would often say, settle down. Don't do too much. And one time I came in and I think I was a little too animated and upset her. And she took off her glasses and she's like kind of angry with me. Have you ever made your doctor angry? It's the worst thing ever. And she said, I sometimes don't think you're taking it seriously enough. You almost died. I go, I know. No, you don't. You almost died twice. Like you were dead. Take it seriously. You were dead. You're almost dead. I mean, I'm like, geez, doc, that's enough. What's she trying to do? To get me to take seriously the moment that I have. To recalibrate my thinking. And I realized in that moment that I needed to not be so focused on just getting over something. I needed to learn what it had for me. And so I realized that for that one strong moment, there were many more weak moments. I went home and most of the time of that period, I was walking with a cane a little bit, limping around the house. I couldn't really get anywhere. So I was trying to walk a little loop around my neighborhood. I couldn't make it around once without stopping and holding my knees and gasping for air. It's not even a mile, it's like a third of a mile. And my friend called me and he said, what's up? And I told him, you know, what I was doing. And you know what he said to me? It's a code phrase between us. He said, Jared, just layer on health. We say that to each other because he heard a, an organic gardener once talk about the, the thing that you could do to make your garden teeming with life. You can't just want it to happen. You can't just overnight make it happen. All you can do when you're working with a garden is layer on health. Keep putting the next healthy thing on the soil. You keep layering it on and layering it on and do the next layer nicely and gently and caringly and with good stuff. And over time, you will have a life in a garden that is teeming with vibrance and joy and just, I can't even describe it. It's the long view. It's the patient view. It's the life of the Spirit. Take the next step. I'm also reminded of the fact that we overestimate what we can do in a day, and we underestimate what we can do in a year. Be patient, church. We overestimate what we're going to be able to accomplish tomorrow. But if you keep taking the next faithful step, if you keep layering on health, if you keep looking with hope for what is to come, if you keep learning the spirit and ignoring the flesh, there's no imagining the grace that can happen in your life and for your loved ones in a year. Keep going.